Shalom and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com and our study of Sefer Dvarim. My name is Menachem Liptag. Today we continue our study of Parshat Ekev, Shur number 4 out of 6. We begin in chapter 9, verse 20, and we will end in chapter 10, verse 11. This will divide into several sections from verses 20 to 29 in chapter 9. will be primarily a discussion of Moshe Rabbeinu's prayer in light of the various sins that Am Yisrael had done during their time in the desert and how God had answered those prayers. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, will be discussion of the second tablets, the second Luchot that Moshe Rabbeinu receives after the sin of the golden calf. Then, in verses 6 and 7, we have a short discussion of the death of Aaron. Afterwards, in verses 8 and 9, we have a short description of the job and responsibilities of the tribe of Levi. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, we return to the topic of prayer and how God answered his prayer after Moshe spent 40 days on Har Sinai. Before we begin our study today, a short observation in relation to rebuke and its relationship to prayer. In yesterday's shiur, in our study of chapter 9, we saw Moshe Rabbeinu repeated the numerous acts that made God angry, and it was primarily a rebuke of how bad the people's behavior has been since the time they left Egypt. I would like to explain how rebuke and prayer are related. There are three ways to understand our relationship with God in relation to forgiveness. One extreme is a God of judgment, better known as Midat Adin. If someone sins, he's punished. And that seems to be the condition in the first Luchot, in the first covenant, in the Ten Commandments, where God is a zealous God, punishes immediately and harshly, on the other hand rewards for good behavior. There's no mention of attributes of mercy in the Ten Commandments of the first tablets. That is also a very logical approach, because if someone sinned, he deserves to be punished. Midat adin. There's another extreme, which is often referred to as a God of mercy, where even though God should punish, if you beg for forgiveness, God can forgive you. But what do you need to do? You need to ask forgiveness. And as God is a merciful God, He will forgive you for whatever you've done wrong. There's a third option, which is somewhere in the middle, but I think is the main topic that Moshe Rabbeinu will be explaining today. And that is, God can forgive. Or to summarize these three options, nice and short, no, He can't, yes, He will, or yes, He can. There's a big difference between yes, He can, and yes, He will. In yes, He can, we understand that there's a possibility of forgiveness, but in order to attain that forgiveness, we must give God a very good reason why we are worthy of that forgiveness. The approach of no, he can't can lead a person simply to give up on his relationship with God. I'm a bad person, I sin, there's nothing I can do about it, that's it. The approach of he will forgive me for sure as long as I pray may lead a person to live a very sloppy religious life, sin whenever he wants, and simply pray and say some magic words whenever he does something wrong, but that will not cause him to fix his behavior. In the middle possibility of, yes, he can, but I must give him a good reason, the knowledge that God can forgive me, but I have to be worthy of his forgiveness, that will lead to a transformative experience where I must explain to God, I recognize what I did wrong, I understand the ramifications of what I did wrong, I'm going to take it by myself to learn from my mistakes and do better, and it could even be that through my mistakes I can become a better person now that I've understood what was so bad about it. In a situation like that, it makes sense for God to forgive you because it'll help make you a better person. Please keep this in mind as we continue our study today because one of the main topics will be the second tablets, which come with God's attributes of mercy, 
And what's interesting about the second tablets, the written word on those tablets is the same as the first tablets, where God's attributes are those of judgment. But if you remember from Pasha Kitisa in chapter 34 in Sefer Shmot, when Moshe brought down the second Luchot, as he received them, God declared and explained to him, even though in this covenant, in this contract, it says that I'm a zealous God, that I'm a God of judgment, you also need to know I'm also a merciful God. And the fact that God can't forgive you, but you have to give him a reason why he should forgive you, enables God's Shekhinah, God's presence to dwell in a nation that's an Am Kshayorev, a nation that is difficulty changing its ways, as long as there are attributes of mercy, that nation can fix its ways, God can give them another chance, and it's possible for the relationship to continue, and God's presence to dwell with them. I'm basing this on chapter 34 in Sefer Shemot, where God declares his attributes of mercy in verses 6 through 8. Afterwards, Moshe quickly bows down and turns to God in prayer, and says in verse 9, if indeed I have found favor in your eyes, God, let Hashem now walk in our midst. Even though we are stiff-necked people, so the idea that even though we're an Amkshe God has the ability to remain in our midst is enabled by God's attributes of mercy. So with this in mind, let's begin with verse 20 in chapter 9. And against Aaron, Hashem became very angry to the point that he wanted to destroy him. And I prayed on behalf of Aaron at that time. Moshe is saying, not only did I pray for you and for the people to God after the sin of the golden calf, I also prayed on behalf of my brother Aaron, and we will see God accepted that prayer. Pasuk of Aleph, verse 21. The sin that you had made, that is, the golden calf. I took it and I burnt it in fire. And I broke it into bits and ground it thoroughly until it was fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that comes down from the mountain. We see from here that at Mount Sinai, there was a brook or a river flowing down from the mountain. And the source of that is back in Sefer Shemot, in chapter 17 in the book of Exodus, when we were in the site of Rafidim and there was no water and the people complained, God told Moshe Rabbeinu to take some elders with him and his staff that he hit the Nile River with and walk to Chorev, that is Mokta Mount Sinai, and hit the rock in Chorev. And water came out of that rock. And from that rock at Chorev, the people were able to drink water. That story we find in chapter 17, verses 1 through 6 in Sefer Shemot. And now pay attention to verse 7 in chapter 17 in Shemot. They called the name of the place where the people complained about the water in Rufidim, and they tested God and questioned God's ability to provide for them. From that time on, the place of that rebellion against God and God giving them the sign by sending them to Mount Sinai to get water, that place was called Masel Mriva. Ariv b'nei Yisrael ba'anasotam et Adonai lemor hayish Adonai b'kirbenu imayim. On the quarrel between b'nei Yisrael with God and on their testing God saying, is God in our midst or not? Therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu's act of taking the test of the Egel, of the calf, and throwing it into the water 
and then having the people drink from that water was supposed to remind them of their experience back in Rufidim, the first time that we see that they actually tested God, and to prove the connection between the story in Rufidim in chapter 17 in Shemot and Moshe Rabbeinu's speech here, we simply need to read the next verse in Dvarim chapter 9. We're up to verse 22. Moshe reminds him, in three places, you made God very angry with you. Tavera, we found out about that in chapter 11 in Sefer Bamidbar. There, in the story of the Mitonunim, God brought fire and punished those people who complained. And that place was called Tavera. Masa is a site we just read about back in Sefer Shmot chapter 17. That's the story when the people complained about the manna back in chapter 11 in Sefer Shmot. Moshe is reminding them of all the key places where the people's behavior had angered God terribly. And now in verse 23, he'll bring one more example. In Pasuk Hafkimol, When Hashem sent you from Kadesh Barnea saying, Alu Go up and go conquer the land that I'm giving you. And you rebelled against the word of Hashem your God. You did not support him, and you did not believe in what he was saying, and you did not obey him. Recall that was the opening line of the covenant in Sinai. And now, Moshe Rabbeinu is summarizing all these places where the people's behavior made God very angry. And the bottom line is, you did not obey me, you did not accept me as my boss, and you did not accept my commandments, and did not have trust in me. And now Moshe summarizes all those points together in verse 24. You've been rebelling against God from the time that I first came to know you. This definitely proves Moshe Rabbeinu's opening point in chapter 9, that you are not getting the land of Israel because you are righteous. But on the other hand, all these examples of rebuke, Moshe reminding them about their terrible behavior in the past, what does it have to do now with the new generation about to go into the land of Israel? What Moshe Rabbeinu is now going to explain, that even though your behavior was bad, you can take those events and learn from your mistakes. And in that context, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to pray to God. God is going to answer these prayers because of the new contract with the attributes of mercy. And now, as a nation is going to enter the land, they need to remember and internalize that should the nation sin again and go astray, there's always a possibility of God forgiving them, but again on the condition that they learn and understand their mistakes and use those events to improve their behavior. So let's read now in verse 25. And I fell down in front of God in prayer for those 40 days and 40 nights that I prayed for. Because God said that He wanted to destroy you. As we explained before, these events, especially when we look at all of them, give God a very good reason to destroy you. Now Moshe explains his prayer. Pasach Chavav, verse 26, And I prayed to God and said, But notice again, as he said in Parshat Fethanan, and as Avram Avinu said in Rit Ben Abtarim, Adon, my master, alluding to God's possibility of attributes of mercy, do not destroy your people and your inheritance. 
אשר פדית בגודלך, that you redeemed with your greatness, אשר הוצאת ממצרים ביד חזקה, that you took them out of Egypt with your strong arm. Moshe Rabbeinu now explains the logic of his prayer that there was a purpose in God redeeming us from Egypt. And now he will continue that the purpose of taking them out of Egypt was the purpose of why he chose our forefathers in the first place. Pasach of Zion, verse 27, Remember your servants, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Do not turn to the hard nature of this people in regard to their wickedness and regard to their sins. Moshe is implying, indeed they have sinned, but remember the purpose of why you chose them. Remember why you chose Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Of course they sinned, but they can learn from their sins and improve. And in addition to that, he'll give another reason in verse 28. Lest the land from where you took us out, referring to Egypt, what might the people there say? It is because of the inability of their God to bring them to the land that he said he was going to bring them to. And because that God hated them, he took them out to kill them in the desert. And now Moshe recalls how he concluded his prayer in verse 29, This nation, they're your people. And they're your inheritance, that you took them out with your great strength and with your outstretched arm. When Moshe Rabbeinu seems to imply, if the entire reason why you chose a nation was to sanctify your name by bringing your reputation to all humankind, then what do you gain by killing us? It will have the opposite effect. The nations of Egypt, which was the center of civilization, who you would like to make an impression upon, they're going to reach the wrong conclusion. And therefore, for the sake of your reputation, because of the underlying goal of why you chose us to make your name great, it's worthwhile for you to give this nation another chance. In light of that, in chapter 10, in the first 11 verses, we're going to have several side comments that almost serve as footnotes to the story in chapter 9. First, we're going to read now, in the first five verses, about receiving the second tablets, and recall that those tablets come with God's attributes of mercy as they were given. Perik Yud, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 10, verse 1, Be'itahi, Amar Adonai Eli, At that time, God said to me, But this time, carve your own tablets, like the first ones, And come up to me to the mountain, And make for yourself a wooden ark, to put the tablets in. There's a very interesting chizkuni on verse 2 in chapter 10, where he explains that maybe the reason why God is telling Moshe Rabbeinu this time to take a wooden ark with him and to put the tablets inside the ark is in order that this time they won't break. In regard to the big question, whether this Aron Eitz is referring to the Aron of the Mishkan, or whether this is a separate commandment, a temporary one, just while he's going up the mountain, that relates to the famous argument between Ramban and Rashi in regard to when the commandment of the Mishkan was given during the first 40 days or the second 40 days, but that argument is beyond the scope of today's shiur. Now in Pasuk Bet in verse 2, Moshe continues by explaining to the people what God told him. God now had told Moshe Rabbeinu 
then I will write on these tablets the same words or the same statements that were on the first tablets. Again, Moshe is quoting what God told him. Not that Moshe is going to write on the tablets, but rather God is going to write on the tablets. The Samtam Baron, and after God will write the commandments on these tablets that Moshe is going to carve, God commanded Moshe to put those tablets inside this Aron, inside this Ark. Pasigimel, Moshe Rabbeinu will now describe what he did. Ba'as Aron at Seishitim, and I made this Aron, I made this Ark out of acacia wood. And I carved out two tablets, like the first ones. Then I went up the mountain. And these two empty tablets in my hand, in order for God to write upon them the words of the Ten Commandments. Pasuk Dalet, verse 4. And then God wrote on these tablets, just like the writing on the first tablets. Et aserta dvarim. The Ten Statements. Those that Hashem spoke to you from the mountain, from within the fire on the day of the assembly. And after writing upon them, God gave those tablets back to me to put inside that Aron, inside that Ark. Pasuk, hey, verse 5. And then I turned and went down from the mountain. And I put these tablets inside the Aron that I made. And they remained there just as Hashem had commanded me. If this commandment to make this Aron is simply a one-time commandment for the second Luchot until the Mishkan will be built, it seems quite strange why Moshe Rabbeinu is talking about this in a speech. If this Aron is referring to the Aron that's going to be at the center of the Mishkan, thematically that would make a lot more sense. But the question is, why are we missing the detail that this Aron Eitz, this Ark, made out of acacia wood, made out of Atzei Shittim, why are we missing the detail that it was plated in gold? What I think makes the most sense is that this indeed is referring to the Ark that will later become the Aron in the Mishkan, because this Aron is going to be the symbol of our relationship with God. And when we look at the Aron, in fact, we're going to travel with this Aron as we cross the Jordan River and enter the land of Israel, the Aron itself is not a god, and the Aron itself will not help us defeat our enemies. The Aron is an item that we need to look at, and when the nation of Israel sees that Aron, they're supposed to remember the relationship with God, and that relationship is based on their keeping the commandments that come in the Aron, keeping that contract that God made with His people and the laws that come with it. And if they take upon themselves to do that, that will give God a reason to forgive them for their sins and help them conquer the land and become their people. Now, why is the gold missing? I think the reason for that is simple as well. Recall, the sin of the golden calf was also an attempt to make a symbol of God. But that symbol that Aaron made, it was all about gold. And that might have misled the people. And the people might have thought that what is going to help them conquer the land, the gold of that golden calf itself, almost in a magical way, and now we need a symbol which is quite the opposite. It's not the gold that makes a symbol. It's what's written on those tablets. And what's written in the Torah that comes with those tablets, that's important. And to de-emphasize the gold and emphasize the words on those tablets, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the story with the emphasis on the tablets and on the fact it is made out of wood and not out of gold. Of course, later in the actual Mishkan, it needs to be made out of gold. 
because that gold is going to glorify God. But in relation to the symbol of what it's supposed to mean to the nation of Israel, when they build the Mishkan, there we need to de-emphasize the gold and put the focus on the tablets. We'll find something very similar in the book of Yechezkel. Recall that the last nine chapters of the book of Yechezkel, from chapters 40 to 49, he has a vision of the temple being rebuilt. The nation of Israel is in exile in Babel, and on the 10th day of the 7th month, which is Yom Kippur, in the 25th year of their exile, Yechezkel has a vision where he sees the temple being rebuilt. And he tells that vision to the nation of Israel. And they're supposed to learn about that temple and be embarrassed about their sins. But if you look at that description of the temple in Yechezkel, you'll notice there's not a mention at all of gold. There's tremendous detail about how to build the temple, all of its midot, all of its sizes, and all of its construction, but not a word about the gold. That doesn't mean the second temple would not have gold. But in that prophetic vision, Yechezkel has to emphasize how the gold might have misled the people, and by de-emphasizing the gold, that may carry an educational message as well. Now we have another type of footnote in verses 6 and 7 about the death of Aaron. Pasuk Vav, Uvnei Yisrael nasumi Beirot b'nei Akan Mosera, the children of Israel traveled from a place called Beirot b'nei Akan until they arrived in Mosera. Sham met Aaron v'yikaver sham, there Aaron died and he was buried there, v'yichahin Elazar b'noch tachtav, and Elazar's son became the high priest to replace him. Why are we mentioning the death of Aaron? Because even though God forgave Aaron for his sin, he, like Moshe Rabbeinu, he, like Moshe Rabbeinu, is not going to enter the land of Israel. And this footnote about the death of Aaron may relate to what Moshe Rabbeinu said earlier in chapter 9 about Aaron's involvement in the sin of the golden calf and how God became very angry with him. God did not punish Aaron right away, but ultimately he received his punishment that he could not go into the land of Israel. As we mentioned that travel, in verse 7, Moshe Rabbeinu continues to explain where they traveled afterwards. Misham Nesuha Gudgoda. From there, they traveled to a place called Gudgod. Umina Gudgoda Yotvata. From there, from Gudgada to Yotvata, Eretz Nachleimayim, and the land of Yotvata was a land that had brooks of water. In modern-day Israel, Yotvata is the name of an area about some 20-30 kilometers north of Eilat. That's because in the Masaot, in Parsha Masay, we see that they went to the area of Yotvata right before, right after, they were in Etzion Gaver, which is the area of Elat. Now that we mentioned the death of Aaron, Aaron was the head of the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Levi has primarily, in day-to-day life, an educational job. And Aaron, as the head of that tribe, now dying and passing on that leadership to his son, now Moshe Rabbeinu has to mention the main responsibilities of the tribe of Levi. He'll describe each of these functions later in his speech, so now we'll just read about the primary definition. Pasuk Chet, verse 8. Ba'et Adonai At that time, God separated the tribe of Levi to carry the Aaron of the covenant of God. To stand in front of God, to serve Him, and to bless in His name. Till this very day. Now, what is Be'etahi here referring to? Is that at the time when Aaron died? Well, that doesn't make much sense because we know the tribe of Levi was separated earlier. Is it referring to the events of the sin of the golden calf? A lot of commentators explain 
that God's decision to take the firstborn away from the original job, who was supposed to be the priests, and transfer that job instead to the tribe of Levi, was a decision that was made in light of the sin of the golden calf, because the tribe of Levi did not sin. In fact, they were the ones who accompanied Moshe Rabbeinu to punish those who sinned with the golden calf, as we read about in chapter 32 in Sefer Shemot. Or the other possibility could be that at that time, the time when we received the Torah at Har Sinai and accepted His covenant, either with the first tablets or the second tablets, at that time God separated the tribe of Levi to serve Him, to teach His Torah, and to bless in His name, as we'll explain later in our study of Parshat Shoftim. So again, each phrase here, the job of carrying the Aron Brit Hashem, which is carrying the responsibility of teaching the Torah that's represented by this Ark of the Covenant, and to serve God, as we will see later on, is not only by serving in the Temple, but by being judges and educators and officials who teach Torah, and to bless the people, not only by blessing them technically in the Temple, Birkat Konim, but also by enabling blessing, by teaching them Torah, all these responsibilities we'll see defined later on in our study of Sefer Devarim. Pasuk Tet, verse 9, For that reason, the tribe of Levi did not receive a portion or an inheritance together with his brethren in the land. His inheritance would be that of God, because instead of working the land and making money, they won't have land. They'll have a place to live, but their main job will be to educate and to teach and to judge and to serve in the temple. And therefore, Hashem is their portion. Just like Hashem, your God, had spoken to him, that is, to the tribe of Levi. Now Moshe concludes in the last two lines, starting with verse 10, about how God accepted his final prayer. And I stood in the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights, just like the first 40 days and 40 nights. And God listened to me that time as well, not only when I first prayed, when he threatened to destroy you, but also how I prayed after 40 days between breaking the Luchot and before receiving the second Luchot, we find described in chapter 33 in Sefer Shemot, where God demands that he not abandon his people and remain to dwell in their midst, which required God's attributes of mercy. Moshe Rabbeinu reminds the people, God listened to the prayer at that time as well, did not destroy you, and you remained his people. Verse 11, Pasuk After God forgave you and gave you the laws of the Mishkan, and the second tablets, etc. God told me to tell you, rise up from Mount Sinai and continue your journey in front of the nation. Then we were commanded to come or cross over and conquer the land that I had sworn to your forefathers to give to them. As the nation who he's talking to now is going now to cross the Jordan and fulfill that commandment, Moshe Rabbeinu now concludes his rebuke by explaining to the people that despite your sinful behavior, God was willing to forgive you and give you another chance to prove your worthiness. And now he's commanding you to continue your journey, cross the Jordan River, and now try to get it right in light of all this rebuke and education that he's reminding you of. We'll continue with Moshe's speech in tomorrow's share with verse 12.